Shabbat Shalom, and welcome to Simchat Yisrael, everyone. So for those of you who are new here or unfamiliar with our synagogue, if Simchat was like a collection of great Jewish rock musicians, Rabbi Tony would be Bob Dylan, and I would be like Gene Simmons of Kiss. <laughs> so in our yearly Torah reading cycle, we're now firmly entrenched within the book of Vayikra. From both a reading and a teaching perspective, Leviticus is a particularly difficult book, I mean, for a couple of reasons. One, unlike Genesis and the majority of Exodus, there's, there's very little storyline. It's almost mostly just this hodgepodge of laws and rituals about sacrifices and unclean animals and immorality with a couple of holidays thrown in. Now, on top of having almost no narrative to make it easier to follow, the subjects of holiness and purity and sacrifice are they're extremely difficult to relate to. You know, you read this stuff and you wonder, is this book even, relative, even relevant to us in the 20th century? Well, I think God placed Leviticus smack in the middle of the Torah where we just couldn't ignore it for a reason. There must be lessons that we can take from this book, even today. We might just need to work a little harder to get to them. But I think if we look closely, we'll find that this strange and seemingly impenetrable book can still teach us lessons that are rationally compelling and spiritually meaningful. So let's dive right in. So today's subject is skin diseases. <laughs> this, this, is a, this is a disgusting chapter. It's all about yucky skin and mold and discharges. I'm, I'm speaking to people from the future now. If you were listening to this on our podcast and you were eating while you listen, just hit pause and finish your food first. <laughs> but I'm, I'm kidding. I'm not going to try to gross people out today, you know, if I can avoid it. But you see what I'm talking about. Leviticus is tough, and Parshat Tazaria is no exception. We're introduced to some of the strangest laws in all of Torah, the laws of the Metzorah. I'm going to use this term a lot today, so I'm going to clarify what it is. Mitzorah literally means afflicted. That's where we get the word matzah from, the bread of the afflicted. But in this case, it's someone who is afflicted with a very specific malady. We read about something called zarat. Most translations in the Bible will translate this to leprosy. But there are strong arguments that zarat is not the same thing as what we call Hansen's disease today. By the way, word of advice, don't ever search for leprosy on a Google image search, unless you want to like, never sleep again. It's like season five of The Walking Dead. Here's an artist's rendition of this terrible disease. Zarat is something different than leprosy. It's described as a general whitening of the skin and of the hair, and more importantly, it's not described as a normal illness. It's described as a spiritual malady that manifests itself physically. You don't go to a doctor to treat Zarat. You go to a priest. And the treatment for Zarat is incredibly bizarre. The Jewish people have never used magic or spells or potions the way other ancient cultures did. But the treatment for Zarat is like something I have seen in Macbeth with like the witches. So to make it a little easier, I've assembled some of the ingredients necessary to cleanse them.
First thing you need is a ball filled with water. And then you need to get two birds. How, what on earth is this bizarre and very specific ritual supposed to treat this particular affliction? Let's see if we can make some sense of this. To understand this, we need to assemble some clues here. What do we know about Zarat? Well, we already covered the physical symptoms. So let's look at what we know about its cause. Midrashic sources suggests that Zerat is the result of involvement with certain kinds of sin. It's most strongly associated with Lashon Hara, speaking in a derogatory manner, or gossiping, or spreading rumors. It's also associated with a general sense of haughtiness, some sort of consequence for a deep lack of humility. So why would involvement in these kinds of sins lead to this particular symptom? And the third clue is what do we know about what happens to a Mitzara? How is he treated? There are two main facets to this law. The first is he's placed outside the camp for the duration of his malady, and the second is that he's declared unclean. Now, let's get something straight here. There's nothing wrong with being unclean. People have a tendency in their heads to associate ritual uncleanness with sin. It's not the same thing. Tameh, is just a natural state of being that everyone gets into all the time. It's, it's not a big deal. But when you're a Metzora, you're like really unclean. There's different levels of Tame. The worst kind of Tame is a dead body. A dead body is not just unclean itself, but spreads its Tame to everything around it. If a corpse is in a tent, then everything in the tent is Tame as well. The only other thing as unclean as a corpse is, you guessed it, a metzora. If a metzora is in a tent, then everything in the tent is unclean as well. So no one really wants to be around a metzora. Someone with Sarat is treated as if they're already dead. There's only one confirmed case of Sarat in the Torah. It's when Moses' sister, Miriam, speaks against Moses and is afflicted. Look at the language Aaron used to describe her. Then Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, I beg you, do not count the sin to us on which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. Oh, do not let her be like one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Think about the Metzorah's appearance. Deathly white, skin drained of all color. They look like they're already dead. There seems to be some sort of fundamental connection between death and Zarat. 
as if the Metzora were in some way already dead. And our last clue is the ritual itself, the strange ingredients used to purify a Metzora. At first glance, they seem to be completely random, but the cleansing ritual is actually patterned on something else that's already happened in Torah. Now, if you search your memory, you'll realize that you've actually seen this ritual played out. What does this remind you of? Where else do we see a process involving wood, hyssop, blood, something that lives while another dies, and a seven-day period during which something has to be kept outside? Well, the Rambam, the famous medieval commenter, said it reminded him of the Korban Pesach, the Passover lamb. Look at the connections. On the first night of Passover, the plague of the death of the firstborn came upon Egypt. The firstborn of Egypt died, but the firstborn of Israel lived and were set free. Just like that bird, I stole there. The blood of the dead bird went into the water. Midrash teaches us that the plague of the firstborn was a foreshadowing of the Egyptian army being drowned in the Red Sea, the blood in the water. In the Metzora ritual, we dip the hyssop plant in blood and paint a piece of wood. On Passover, we took that same plant, hyssop, and painted the wooden doorposts with the blood of the lamb. And when this is all over, all the chumets is banished from the house. What's going on here? Banished from the house for seven days until it can be brought back inside, just like the Metzora who after he completes his ritual must stay outside the camp for seven days until he can return. There's a connection between Passover and the strange death-like affliction, Sarat. Indeed, the word nega, plague, only appears twice in Torah, once to describe the affliction of Zarat and the other to describe the plague of the death of the firstborn. Every other time a plague is mentioned, it's the word negef or something else. There's a connection here, but why? Why does the Torah construct the purification process in a way that models the Passover? It's like boxes within boxes. Our answers only lead us to more questions. So to understand the mystery of the Mitzvah, we're going to have to keep digging and find more clues to really understand these strange laws. So let's keep going. The Talmud devotes a lot of discussion to the Mitzvah and how we should act, and how we should be treated. What's interesting is that in this discussion, the rabbis are comparing and contrasting three different kinds of people. One, a metzora, someone who's been banished from the community, and a mourner. They pose all kinds of questions. Can a banished person wear shoes? If not, what about a metzora or a mourner? A banished man can wear tefillin. Can a mourner or a metzora? We know aren't, mourners aren't supposed to say hello. Can the Metzora say hello? Over and over, they compare these three kinds of people. But what's the connection? It seems to make sense to compare Metzora to a banished person. I mean, they're both separated from the community outside the camp. But why compare a Metzora to a mourner? I mean, sure, there's a connection between Zerat and death. But that means that a Metzora should compare to a dead person not to someone grieving over the dead. Why did the rabbis compare him to a mourner? 
There once was a dying man who was being visited by his close friend in the hospital. The friend told the dying man, When you pass, I will be very grieved. I will be in mourning for you. The dying man thanked his friend, but told him, It's strange that you are the one who will be in mourning when I die. I am the one who should be mourning, because when I die, you will have lost one friend. But after I'm dead, I will have lost everyone that I care about. How much more do I have to mourn over than you? I think this is the key to understanding Zarat. A Metzora is more than just someone with a skin disease. He's been afflicted with some kind of living death. He shares all the qualities of a dead person, the appearance, the uncleanness, the separation from society. And so he is a mourner. He mourns for himself, for his own loss of connection. The Matsura is in a terrible in-between state, neither fully dead nor fully alive. The only way he can escape this condition is through this strange purification ritual that seems to so closely mirror the Passover sacrifice. So we've compiled our clues, and we have a better understanding of what's going on here. We know what Zarat is. It's kind of living death brought on by speaking Lashon Hara. And we know what the Matsura ritual is, a recreation of Pesach. But how do we tie all this together? What is it about Pesach that has the power to bring the dead to life? Think about what happened on that night of the first Passover. Last week, Rabbi Tony pointed out that the first command God ever gave Israel as a nation was to eat the Passover lamb. This is super significant for our understanding of all this. The first time we acted as a nation, on that night all those years ago, a vast group of individual, disconnected families slaughtered a lamb, painted blood on their doors, and went into their homes to celebrate Passover. The next morning, when they emerged through those same doors, they were no longer individuals. They were a community. God had freed them, brought them together, gave them a new life. Passover was the rebirth of the Jewish people, our national birthday. The Passover lamb is the birth of our community. The Metzora is dead, but not biologically. He's dead communally. The part of him that connects him to other people has withered away now, and he only exists as an individual rather than part of something greater. He's missing a fundamental part of what makes us alive and whole. So let me give you an illustration. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Magic School Bus books, but they were popular when I was a kid. It's about what it sounds like. It's a Magic School Bus that transports the students to all kind of weird terrifying places like inside of a volcano or at the bottom of the ocean, all for educational purposes, of course. So one particularly memorable, gross book shrunk them down and took them inside the human body all the way to the cellular level. Now, imagine all these curious school children are exploring and they meet a liver cell. And they ask him who he is because, of course, in all children's stories, inanimate objects can speak. So a cell would be, well, I am cell. I am unique. And whole, I have my cell membrane, I've got my nucleus, I've got my DNA. You name it, I got it. I'm all good. And he's right, to a certain extent. The cell is very independent. 
He's got everything he needs to sustain himself. But he's missing a big part of his identity. You know, the kids would tell him, no, Sal, you're more than that. You're part of something larger. You're part of the liver. And you have a bigger job to do than just sustaining yourself. There's a communal side to you as well. And the cell will be surprised, and he'd say, well, this liver must be the most important thing in the world. This is not my best analogy. And you'd say, well, sure, it's important. But even the liver is just one organ in the body, and they all work together. All of us are like that cell. We're all independent and special, but we can't forget that we are part of something larger. We're part of a family. We're part of a community. We're members of a nation. Our nation, Israel, was born on the night of the first Passover. We all went through that bloody door and emerged as part of something larger. And that's what the Metzorah needs. He needs to be reborn and brought back into the community. Think about the sins that, that cause one to be afflicted with Zarat. Lashon Hara and haughtiness. These are antisocial sins. They drive wedges between people and attack our sense of community and belonging. They set us apart. These sins encourage us to see ourselves in a false light, like that liver cell. They make us think that we're only individuals. Oh, that we aren't part of something greater. These sins cause the communal part of ourselves to wither away. And now, finally, this strange ritual begins to make sense. The Metzora needs to rebuild his communal identity, and he does it by imitating the procedure by which we all joined the community. We all started off alone in our homes and then walked through the doors to become part of a nation. Now there's someone outside who's cut off. We need to gather him back in through the Passover offering so that he can finally come home. So I'm going to call the worship team back up. And as I do, I want to point out one last strange thing that I kept noticing as I prepared this sermon. All these ideas that I presented to you come from traditional Jewish sources. Yet it seems so obvious to me that Torah is pointing to our Messiah, Yeshua. In a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate Passover. And we'll learn all over again how Yeshua is the Paschal Lamb, the perfect sacrifice by which all the world is redeemed. Now, we who are dead in our sins are made alive again by Messiah Yeshua. How fitting is it that the Metzorah, one who is spiritually dead, is made alive again through the sacrifice of a perfect lamb. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Shabbat shalom.